seated. I am so excited to be able to preach this morning and to share with you from Galatians chapter 2. I will tell you that this has been a busy weekend. I had the privilege of being uh, with our deacons on Friday night and Saturday in a retreat setting. And I'm just, I'm just happy to announce to you that as we met and as God met with us, it was just one of those special times that, that men got together, deacon servants and pastor servant, just got together and began to train as well as began to pray. And God did something in that time. And I, I, I want to share that with you. I, I hope that you will uh, talk with your deacons, talk with those men. In fact, later in the service, they're going to have a special time of uh, prayer for a young man that's being deployed. But I, I'm just so thankful uh, that, that Tim and Ann uh, hosted us at their home, and we were able to, to spend that time together. And then last night, I had a wedding last night uh, at 5 o'clock. So I'm not, I'm not lazy, folks. I want you to know that. And, and I'm, I'm just enjoying what God is doing. This morning, I'm going to preach a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, one verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, uh, it's going to be up here. If you're visiting with us from another church, we're so glad that you have chosen to, to be with us today. And, and rest assured that we're praying for churches all over this city and all of this land. Uh, listen, folks, I agree with what Pastor John said earlier. God is in control and we just really need to be people of the word and people of prayer. And we need to understand that we have what we have just sung. Jesus Christ, our living hope. Well, today, I want to talk to you about uh, Christ living and lives in me. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been telling you now, we're going to come to a place, verse by verse, in this book that's going to dig a little deeper. Remember that? Last week, I, I've been in a narrative. It's been fun to follow the storyline, but now this is the week that we dig down. And so I hope you brought your shovel with you because I, I want you to get your shovel and I want you to dig down with me. Here's what it says, only one verse. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Boy, uh, I'm going to tell you something. If you're listening, you better get ready to shout. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now to get that, I think we have to review just a few minutes. My wife always says, why do you always review? I said, because I forget. And if I forget, I know they forget. So what was Paul's argument? When we, when we add anything to grace, we destroy the message in that moment. Righteousness can only be produced through our surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, ladies and gentlemen. Christ living in Paul now enabled him to be what God demanded him to be. This is where we're headed. This is what grace is all about. It's either religion or it's grace. One or the other. You can't have both. They don't mix. And now we enter into Galatians chapter 2. And you've got to remember, before we enter into this and get our shovels out, remember that Paul confronted Peter last week. You remember that? And in his confrontation, he said, 
Peter, you have become a hypocrite. What you said in Jerusalem now in Antioch, it's the opposite. What has happened to you? How have you been so deceived? And so you see a man like Simon Peter, who has been so bold at certain times. I told you I like Simon Peter. I, I think I'm a lot like him because Simon Peter, he was definitely always sticking his foot in his mouth. He was always being so bold. And yet, Paul confronted him. And he said, Peter, do you remember? I mean, think about it. This is a guy who denied Jesus. And now he even is denying the message of grace for fear of what people are going to, to say about him. And it shows the fact that he hasn't yet become resolved that the message of grace is the only way. It's the only way. It's what the gospel says. Well, let's ease into Galatians 2.20 and see what Paul says about himself as he continues. First of all, Paul makes a proclamation. I have been crucified with Christ. Would you say that together? I have been crucified. I want you to learn it. Perfect tense means something happened over here that puts me into the state of being I'm, over, I'm in over here. And I, we've got to understand that the people, uh, folks that, that believe they can lose your salvation wrestle with the perfect tense. Perfect tense means it happened. It happened. Therefore, this is why I am where I am right now. And in the passive voice means that Paul didn't initiate that action. Now, I've given you all that information to tell you well, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, he is in the active voice. He initiated it. He turned his back on the law. He did that. Okay? In Galatians 2.20, it's in the passive voice in the Greek language. God did something. Aren't you glad he did? Wow. When you turn away from the law and you bow before the resurrected living Christ, he then does something in your life. What is it he did? What happened back here that puts Paul in the state of being he is in right now? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. There has been a death. Oh, we need to understand this. Technically, when Christ was crucified, Paul says, I've been co-crucified with Christ. Now think about this. This is where we're going to dig down another level. When Christ was crucified, what he's saying is, I was on the cross with him. Paul is saying, I was on the cross there. By the way, you were there also. He not only had you on his mind, he had your sins upon himself. And he became sin for you and me. He took our sin to the cross, ladies and gentlemen. He took it all. And oh, Christ took all that Paul was as a sinner to the cross. Paul really had no awareness of this, that the debt has, has, has already been paid. These people that have to do this and do that and do this to earn their salvation. What, what do you mean? Jesus has already paid the debt. You say, well, that, that's universalism, isn't it? If that's the case, 
everybody's saved. No, 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 no. Until you put your faith into Jesus, it doesn't become yours. Now remember, I use this word technically. Technically, he was on the cross with Jesus, but experientially and positionally, that had to occur when he received Jesus into his heart, into his life. You see, even though he technically died for the sins of the whole world, not everybody has received what he has paid for. And that's what salvation is all about. Experientially, it came into Paul's life on the Damascus Road. We've read that already. With the Lord Jesus, the the resurrected Christ stopped Paul in his tracks. And he understood that the law will never cut it. And he received Jesus into his heart. What had happened on the cross now became his, and he was a believer. Crucifixion means death. Now listen to me. When Jesus came into Paul in the person of the Holy Spirit, the old Paul died. I told you we were going to dig deep this morning. I I know some of you are saying, man, I wish everybody was here to, to hear this. Well, you're here right now, okay? And I want you to hear this because all of his rights to himself died. All of his rights to think as he pleased died. All of his rights to do as he pleased died. He signed the death warrant to his rights to himself when he received Jesus into his heart. He turned all of his emotional impressions, all of his intellectual beliefs into a moral verdict against the disposition of sin, which says, I can do what I want to do as I choose. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. The old legalistic Saul became the Apostle Paul, and the Bible says he's a brand new person. Now, I'm telling you, if you'll dig with me this morning, you'll ask the question, what made him different then? The Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ came in to live in him. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, or any woman is in Christ, uh, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things are have come. So there has been a death. I've been crucified with Christ. Let's stop looking at Paul now. Let's look at ourselves. I have no rights to myself. I have no right to do as I please, to think as I please. I bowed down and I lost those rights when I received Jesus into my life. The law is not my master anymore. Jesus is my master. And we died. The big I, the big A, I died and it has been taken out of the equation. Again, I take you to Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The word baptized means immersion, yes, but it also means identification. If you have a bowl of dye, I almost did this today, and then I thought, eh, I don't want to make a mess on that pretty blue carpet. I thought about bringing in a bowl, a clear bowl, a big cake bowl, you know, one of those big mixing bowls, and putting red dye in that bowl and having a nice, white, fluffy towel and asking you, what color is this towel? And you would have said, 
Come on, folks. There's no ban on talking, okay? Touching, maybe. No talking, okay? White. But if I, if I put that white fluffy towel and submerged it today in that red dye, the cloth has been become identified with the red dye. And now not only is the cloth in the dye, but the dye is in the cloth. You don't have a white cloth anymore or a white towel. You have a red towel. And this is what happened in salvation. Stay with me. Not only were we baptized in him, but now he lives in us. Ooh. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. Wow. The word newness means total, qualitatively different way of living. Let me tell you something. If you're not living differently than you did before you came to Christ, you might want to go back and revisit that. Because ladies, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes I see a lot of people in church who have a lot of religion, but they have no relationship whatsoever. Oh, but pastor, I'm a deacon. I'm a son. I don't care about your position. I care about your relationship. You can be a deacon and be lost. Uh-oh, got quiet. You can be a Sunday school teacher and be lost. You can be a preacher and be lost. How is that? Well, because Paul makes it very clear. When you don't live unto yourself as you did before you got saved, now you live unto him and he is your Lord and he is your master. This past week we were talking about how you make sweet tea. I like sweet tea. I married a southern girl, and I had never really tasted sweet tea kind of like they make it in, the, in Tennessee. Lord have mercy. Oh, I like that stuff. And, and I, don't, I don't really know how to make anything. I've learned, but, uh, you know, when you get, you've got to get tea boiling and hot, and then it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, then you add the sugar when it's, when it's hot and boiling, Right? I said, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't you put the sugar in it when it's cold? Well, I was told very clearly it won't dissolve when it's cold. And it only dissolves when it's hot. It will be sweet then from now on. And it only dissolves when it's hot. And it will be sweet then, and you can't ever take that sweet taste out of it. I wouldn't want to take the sweet taste out of it anyway. Why? Because there's something about when it's heated up, the sugar and the tea just sort of melt into one, and the two different things become one, changing the whole dimension of both of those two things. That's exactly what happens when you get saved. You are sweet tea for Jesus. And it dawned on me, boy, I'm going to get really, really theological now, okay? It dawned on me that it won't in any way dissolve in cold tea. It sits right down in the bottom of the glass, and you've got to keep stirring it and stirring it and stirring it. Man, all of a sudden, I thought, man, I understand what I've been doing for 40 years, stirring those cold water tea people, you know. 
if you could do something to keep it in the bottom of the glass, you could separate the two. But if it's hot and, and you put the sugar in, you can't separate it. This is what I'm saying. Listen to the Lord Jesus. We have been united together. I have been crucified with Christ. Remember, Jesus doesn't like anything that's cold or lukewarm. He kind of likes it when it's hot. Although he did say, I wish you were cold or hot instead of being lukewarm. Just get us hot. I've been praying for this church to get hot. I don't mean temperature-wise. I mean spiritual. I saw some of that yesterday morning. I saw some of that Friday night. I saw a spark. I saw a flame. I saw some things beginning to happen even in our, our deacon body. And I was so excited because in salvation, you're spiritually hot. And the sweetness of his presence comes and meshes itself into us. And forevermore, we are changed. We can't be separated from one another. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, what happened at salvation? Jesus came to live in you. There has been a death and a resurrection of a brand new person. Now, when we become a believer, what we were in Adam is gone. I hope you understand that everybody is either in Adam or in Christ. You only have two options. You were born into Adam, and only by putting your faith into Christ can you ever be born into Christ. It's what we call born again. John chapter 3, born from above. When we're in Christ, all of our sinful past has been erased. All of the believer's rights have been surrendered then to Christ. Christ has come into the believer to rule and to reign in us. He is not resident in our lives. He is president of our lives. He is the head of the church, amen? But he is the president of our life. Some of us treat him like he's just a resident. And he can come in and out. No, ladies and gentlemen, he does not want to be a renter. He is the president of our life. And so Peter says, you know, Christ, he looks at this. We even, like Peter, have partaken of the divine nature. Christ has come in, helped us experience the newness of life. He has given us a brand new beginning. But there's a problem. And this is where people oftentimes either ignore it or don't understand it. This is why you've got to start off understanding he is Lord. I want you to say that with me. Jesus is Lord. Say that. You believe that? Do you live like that? We still have the potential to sin. Peter was a believer, fell right back up under the law. He was an apostle. You think that's not sin to get right up back under the law? You see, we all have a tendency, we all have a tendency to do that. I shared with the deacons yesterday morning, for most of my ministry life, and you've heard me say this,
for most of my life in ministry. I had a mask, and I could put it on, and I could take it off. And I could go home, and I was defeated. I was depressed. But when I began to understand truly that he is Lord of my life, regardless of my position or my place or my accolades, and I began to say, Father, I, I need your spirit to fill me on a daily basis many, many times. Lord, I, I'm just a vessel. I need you to fill me with your spirit. According to Ephesians chapter 5, continually filling me. And I began to walk in that and understand that the Lord is my strength. And it's not my position. It's not my place. It's not how people receive me or don't receive me. It is that he is Lord of my life. And, and Romans chapter 6, 6 beautifully brings it out. Paul uses this word crucified as a metaphor. And look what he does. Knowing this, that our old self, what we used to be in Adam, was crucified with him. It's dead. It's gone. You can never be what you used to be because Christ lives in you. It was put to death. Why? that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, the first thing you've got to realize is you have a body of sin. I often, I often hear people say this, Christians, that the devil is chasing them. They like to blame the devil for everything. I mean, you remember, who was it? Flip Wilson said, the devil made me do it. That we didn't flip. Listen, I believe the devil is real, don't you? I believe he's real, but we give him too much credit and too much power. That's convenient. What is he going to do if he catches you? Gum you to death? Jesus yanked all of his teeth out on the cross. It's not the devil that's my problem. It's not the devil that's your problem. What my problem is, when I look in the mirror every morning, when I get up, I want you all to do something for me tomorrow morning when you get up. I want you to say, good morning, body of sin. Just to understand what your problem is. It's not your wife, husband. It's not your husband, wife. It's not your children. It's not your neighbor. It's not the person that drove 15 miles an hour in the 45-mile-an-hour zone this morning that you really wanted to have a Christian hand sign to give. You can't get rid of those folks. It's not that person. It's you. It's me. I've got to deal with Alan. I've got to deal with me every day of my life. Now, the word destroy in the King James Version says destroyed. The Amer New American Standard says done away with. Why they translated this way, I don't know, but but you check it out and see if it's so. The word there is a, a very unusual word. It means to be shifted into neutral. It's the word K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. Kata means down, and argio means to be disengaged. Now, I want you to get this. When power has been disengaged, when it has been made idle or inactive, disengaged, now, when Christ came into our lives, he didn't take the transmission 
that causes sin and throw it out. But what he did was he disengaged the transmission. Are you with me? In other words, we still have the potential to sin. But because he lives in us now, and he is our Lord, and if we'll live under his lordship, saying yes to him, then all of the power of sin is continuing to stay disengaged in neutral. It can't do a thing to harm me, but when I do like Peter did, and I have done it, and so have you, and others have done, and I step back under the law, immediately what I've done is I've shifted that transmission right back into gear, and that's when sin takes over in my life and in your life. And all believers need to understand this. You start with the understanding when you come in, not only are you under grace, but he now is president, Lord of your life. The big I has been removed. And whatever he says to yield to, he empowers what he says. So, what, so that's what Paul is trying to clear up. What happened at salvation? But, but one of the things it's doing in the context of not only Galatians but Romans, in the context of Galatians though, being in Christ now means that the law has no claim over us anymore. No control. Glory to God. And it now has no condemning power. Look in Romans chapter 7. If, if this doesn't excite you, then this would be a good morning to get saved, okay? Romans chapter one, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, and I love that, that are, are, are walking around without this understanding. I want, I want to say this to people all the time, especially especially folks that send me emails sometimes or, or, or they say something to me. You know, my wife has taught me this little phrase, bless your heart. <laughs> Can I tell you what? Bless your heart in the South doesn't really mean bless your heart. <laughs> but I've learned. I've had people email me before and write me letters and this, that, and the other. But I, I, I want to say to them, Romans chapter 7. Are you walking around without this understanding? Do you not understand this? He says, brethren, for I am now, I, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Not, not the law, that, that there is no definite article there, by the way. Just anybody that understands the law. The Gentiles were in Rome, the, and, and, and that's who made the, he said the Jews understood it from a different perspective than the Gentiles did. What is the rule about law that we have got to understand? That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as what? He lives. So as long as you're alive in the law, the law has jurisdiction over you. You can't get free from it. Hey, as long as you're living, the law has jurisdiction. Now he makes it clear. Romans chapter 7, verse 2, he says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Now, now don't make this a, a marriage passage right now, okay? Make the main thing the plain thing. What is he saying? In order for me to be free from one relationship and to have a relationship with Christ, what has to happen? There has to be death. Oh, you see where he's headed. 
what did we just read back in chapter 6? I'm crucified with Christ. Crucifixion means death. He says in Romans chapter 3, So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she tries to have a relationship with another one, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And what he's saying is you can't coexist with two relationships at the same time. It's kind of like what he's saying to Peter. Peter, what are you doing? You either are under grace or you're under law. You can't mix the two. One has got to go for you to be under the other. And then he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, and oh, I just love this. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Oh, praise God. How did that happen? He tells you. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Through the body of Christ. What does he mean? When he was crucified, you were crucified. And when you receive the one who accomplished all that the law demands, and he comes to live in you, you're set free, ladies and gentlemen. Cut free from the law. It can never control you. It can never condemn you. The only way it has the potential is if you choose to go back up under it. That's what Paul is trying to get across. He says, to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit unto God. There's been a death. I think we've, 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 we've accomplished that this morning. The death warrant to our self-esteem has been signed. My right to do to myself has been, whatever I want to has been revoked. I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The law demands, the law's demands now have no power over a dead man. It's a magnet, yes, to the flesh. It continues to pull to the flesh, but as long as we turn to him who conquered that pull and conquered that magnet, and as long as we're saying yes to him, then the law can do nothing to us. The power of sin, which it produces, sin functions, and it takes the opportunity with the law. It goes on to say in chapter 7, but as long as we're saying yes to, to him, the power of sin has been disengaged. So Paul makes this proclamation. What I used to be is dead. I've been crucified with Christ. Peter? Are you listening to me? I mean, Paul is standing there talking to Peter, and I believe he's talking to the churches in Galatia. Is your theology straight, Peter? Do you understand it? For you to back up under the law is the only choice you have made. Christ has set you free, Peter. You have a new master, not the law, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes this proclamation. Does that not excite your heart this morning like it does mine? Because when we make this proclamation, I have been crucified with Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that sets us into this relationship. This, we, we have a relationship with the risen, resurrected Christ. He lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Woo! Man, that that should ignite a fire in us. I know everybody is talking about 
all sorts of things these days. But listen, if the world could see, here is a people who have been crucified with Christ and now they're living the resurrected life. Wow. You don't have to put an advertisement on the TV saying, come to church. If they see us, they're going to want some of that. They're going to want whatever we have. Well, but then he states a paradox. Oh, man, isn't this just like Paul? He gives, us, he gives us this proclamation that we can shout. And then he says a paradox. Now, paradox is a statement that apparently contradicts itself. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And then he said, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live. So complete has Paul's death in Christ been that his whole personality is now merged with Christ. It's not Paul anymore. It's not me anymore. It's Christ living in me. Christ lives in me. There's a, it's, a, it's a Greek uh, a verb there, present, active, zoe, and it's a word that means the essence of life. And he's saying Christ is the essence of my life. You see something good in me, then point to the essence of my life, Christ. He's my Lord. He's my master. When I say yes to him, he manifests his presence in me. It's the essence of my life. That's what he says in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. Same word. He says over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, returns. He says, Christ's present tense is living in me right now. I don't know how many people down through the years have, I've watched them come into church buildings just like this one and say to their children, now, sweetie, be quiet now. You're in God's house. And the child says, who's? You're in God's house. And I understand what they're trying to do to teach reverence and all those sorts of things. That child grows up thinking every time he gets near that big building, he better be quiet because God lives in that building. No, he doesn't. God doesn't live in this building. You know where he lives? He lives in you and me. He came in, yes, he is omnipresent, but he came in with you guys. He came in with me. We brought him in here. He, he, he lives in you. He doesn't live in this, in this worship center. So many times I, I watch people walk in to a church building and they, they all of a sudden get holy. And they have this, this air about them. I've watched them even pulled up in the parking lot. Right before they pull in the parking lot, the husband and wife are going at it. They're fighting. And then they pull in the parking lot and they see the pastor. Oh, good morning, pastor. <laughs> all of that holiness comes over them because... They've got to, they got to put on the they got to put on the the robe. Listen. Christ lives in you at home in your child's bedroom when you're tucking them in. Christ lives in us. Now, the one who fulfilled the law now lives in you. Now, what are you doing trying to fulfill what he has already fulfilled? Are you with me? You see, this is the whole point. 
what are you trying to add to what he has already accomplished? And the one who gave the law, the one who fulfilled the law, now lives in us. And when we obey him, when we obey him, the fruit of, the, of his spirit is love against which there is no law. We read last week from Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He took care of the law. How? As a man, the God-man, he represented us, and then he went to the cross for us. What in the world are we trying to, to do by going back up into that law mentality? Spurgeon said, if I do something for God and ask him to bless it, it's like taking filthy rags and pinning them on his spotless garments and saying, oh God, would you accept this for me? He's not interested in what I can do for him. He's interested in what he wants to do in and through me. Some of us are trying to impress God, and can I tell you, you're not ever going to impress him. Let me, let me show you this. What a wonderful truth. He lives in us right now. For if while, listen, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled. This is the death reconciled is, watch this now, we shall be saved not by his death, but by what? By his life. Now where is that life? Romans chapter 6 verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. What is he doing? He lives in me, pulling me towards the Father at all times. Do you realize how many hurdles we have to step over? He's given us a prejudiced will to do what is right. It's his heart, his nature in us. When a person chooses to, to sin as a believer, how many hurdles we have to step over? Ladies and gentlemen, quit thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Get out of the way and let Jesus be Jesus in you. You see, stop trying to impress him. He isn't impressed. The only time he's impressed, and I can tell you this, I, I'm preaching as much at me right now as I am you. He's impressed when he looks at us and he sees himself. That's when he's impressed. So how in the world, preacher, do I appropriate that? That's next week. Okay? That's next week. But I'm going to tell you, when I began to think about this passage, I read something that Oswald Chambers said. He said, no one has ever united with Jesus Christ until he is willing to relinquish not sin only, but his whole way of looking at things. To be born from above of the Spirit of God means that we must let go we must let go before we lay hold. And in the first stages, it is relinquishing all the pretense. The experiences that I've had the last eight years have, have been those relinquishing 
the pretenses. What I came to find out was our Lord wants us to present to him, not my goodness, because I don't have any, not my honesty, not my endeavors, not what I've done for you, God, but real, solid sin. On June 12, 2012, when God began to rework this preacher's heart and life over, I will tell you that I probably for the first time, and, and you guys got to understand this, I was raised in a parsonage. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up going to church. In fact, I thought we might as well save some money and start living at the church. We were there every time the doors were open. We were there. My dad took me to committee meetings with him. How boring for a child. But you know, looking back, I wouldn't take anything for it. I got to live. <laughs> I got to live with a mom and dad that loved Jesus with all their hearts. I miss him so much. I got to see a man who was a real man. Not sometimes in the world's eyes, but he was a real man. He loved my mom. He loved the Lord. He, he was the same in the pulpit as he was in the parsonage. I saw him get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and pray for three hours. And I wouldn't go get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, but I knew my dad was. And oftentimes I would get up and, and I would use the restroom and I could hear him out in that, in that special place that he called his, his time alone with the Lord and I could hear him calling out my name. I could hear him calling out my sister's name. I could hear him calling out people's name in the church that he pastored. My dad knew something then that took a long time for me to understand, but I will tell you that in June of 2012, I began to see my sin. I began to see what was nailed to the cross, and it was personal. And I had to relinquish all pretense of being anything and all claim of being worthy. I'm not. I'm privileged, but I'm not worthy. And then the Spirit of God began to show me further that there, in this relinquishing, there will have to be a relinquishing of my claim to my right to myself in every phase of my life. Am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess? my hold on all my affections, on everything to be identified with the death of Jesus Christ. There is always a sharp, painful disillusionment to go through before we do relinquish. And when we really see ourselves as God sees us, it's not the abominable sins of the flesh that shock us, but the awful nature, the pride, and the arrogance of our heart. That was my case. As I began to see what Christ died for, for me, I began to see the pride and the arrogance of this preacher. And God began to clean me up and show me. And he began to relinquish through my heart that awful nature of pride. 
When we see ourselves in the light of the Lord, the shame and the horror and the desperate conviction begin to come home. Listen, I'm preaching again as much to me because it is a process, but I want to tell you, I don't ever want to go back to where I once was. I have been crucified with Christ. And I want Christ to be seen in me. If you know Christ, you have been crucified with Christ. But some of you have not yet done what I had not done for many, many years. I had relied on myself and on my flesh and on my talents and on my abilities and on all those things. And the Lord said, no, Alan, you've got to give up in order to get this life. When I gave up, let me tell you, I got a lot more than I left behind. I don't look back anymore. I want Christ to live in me. I want Christ to be seen in me. I don't care if I get seen. I don't care if I get any accolades. I, I'm, I'm as honest as I can be with you. I want Christ to live in me. Do I still struggle? Just like you do. But every day the struggle is with me, not the devil. It's with me. Some of you are struggling right now because this message is extremely uncomfortable. Because, see, you like your religious kind of little situation. I can come to church. I can be this. I can be that. I've actually got a title. Pastor, have you seen what I've done? Don't try to impress me either. I want to tell you, if you will relinquish if you will give up, the joy of that living far surpasses anything you've ever experienced. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I told you it was going to get deep.